Hi, I'm Andrew Mandel, and you're listening to Drinking and Droshing, Torah with a Twist. So if you want to throw a drink at 2020 or raise your glass for a better world in 2021, you've come to the right place. Gabe, Happy New Year. Happy New Year, Amanda. I am really excited that we are spending it together yet again. And it's kind of a neat thing that the new year and the new book that we're entering align. Definitely. It's a very exciting coincidence. But it seems like this portion could be a little boring. I mean, it's just about names, right? Not at all. The story portion is full of interesting characters, plot lines, and other stuff that will lend itself to a really great conversation. So I guess we're really lucky that our guests this week are all classmates of ours. I mean, we've got Andrew Mandel, Shoshana Nambi, and Rachel Hirschman. I can't think of a better crew. We've got rabbinical school covered. We've got cantorial school covered. We've got education and nonprofit schools covered. And with Idan, we even have HUC adjacent covered. Well, I'm really excited to get started. Hello and welcome to our 10th episode. We are so delighted to bring our second duo and our first repeat guest onto our 10th episode, bringing Andrew Mandel and Shoshana Nambi onto episode number 10. That's right, 10. I want to see if I can say it 10 times in our first sentence. Probably not. But we're also really excited because we're starting a new year. We're starting a new book. It's all about names. It's all about people. And how lucky we are to have Shoshana Nambi, Andrew Mandel, and Rachel Hirschman as our Q&A guest today. Hi, and welcome to the show. Woohoo! Delighted to be back. It's an honor, a privilege. I'm so happy to be here. And with these two lovely ladies, couldn't be better. Hello. It's just so wonderful to be here with all of you. Thanks so much for having me. It's like a little HUC reunion right now, and it makes me very happy. Of course, we couldn't bring in the new year without our friends or without the most fabulous co-host, Gabe Snyder. Happy New Year, Gabe. Happy New Year. And of course, a very happy new year to the most wonderful, spectacular producer of all time, Edon Waldman. Hello, everybody. I feel like we have an incredible stadium of fans that are just clapping, roaring, thunderous applauding, you know, and of course the wonderful whistles, shouts, cheers. Believe it or not, they're all coming from one incredible fan, Andrew Mandel. I am so excited to be able to share just a little bit of the stories of our two guests today, starting with Shoshana Nambi and then moving to Andrew. Shoshana Nambi grew up in Uganda's Abayudaya Jewish community. She dreamt of being a rabbi, but Shoshana chose to study business administration at Kampala International University as she grew up. She also trained as an HIV community educator and counselor and subsequently worked with Rain Uganda, a grassroots HIV organization for more than three years. Shoshana received opportunities to travel, including attending BCI in California, representing Kulanu across the U.S. and working with Camp Coleman, a reform camp in Georgia. Shoshana worked together with Coleman Friends to start a program that saw 13 youths from Uganda work in Jewish summer camps across America. 
Through Camp Coleman's guidance and encouragement, she conducted a Hebrew Union College as a rabbinical student. Before moving to NYC last year with her 11-year-old daughter, Emuna, shout out to Emuna, Shoshana spent two years studying in Israel and is now a third-year rabbinical student on her way to becoming the first female rabbi of her community in Uganda. What, what? For now, she serves as a student rabbi for North Fork Reform Synagogue in Kutchug, New York. Which leads me to another third-year rabbinical classmate, Andrew Mandel. Andrew Mandel is a third-year rabbinical student at Hebrew Union College in New York, along with Rachel, Gabe, Shoshana, and myself. He began his career as a seventh-grade English teacher on the Texas-Mexico border. He then ran national leadership development for Teach for America by day and a volunteer community advocacy organization by night to address educational equity in his hometown school district. These days, he alternates between studying, teaching, and promoting the Sedic Box, a Jewish justice journaling ritual. Andrew lives with his partner in Long Island City, Queens, and most significantly, is the proud uncle of two nephews, Julian and Gabriel. Andrew, as a recent aunt myself, congratulations on the new additions. Thank you so much. And I'm sure that your co-host would agree that an excellent name has been chosen for the new bait. <laughs> Very much so. Gabe, with a new year and a new book, do you think you're ready for the old challenge of getting this first portion, new book, in 30 seconds or less? Well, Amanda, I know you'll call this segment the 30-second parasha summary no matter what I do, but considering this parasha is over five chapters long, that is super extra definitely not going to happen. We all ready? Awesome. With a new year comes a new book of Torah to discover, and so with that, welcome to Shemot, the book of names, because, well... That's what we start with, a literal list of names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. Anyway, we get past that pretty quickly, as does the kingdom of Egypt, with Joseph. We start with a pharaoh who's never heard of them and was generally not happy with the sheer amount of Israelites that spread out across the land, filling up the kingdom with Jewish families and kinfolk. Pharaoh decides he can drive them out of his cities by breaking them with hard tasks, ruthless taskmasters, and a severe decree to the Hebrew midwives Shifra and Pua that they should kill every Israelite baby boy and let every girl live. Yikes. Luckily, the midwives didn't do it. Pharaoh's annoyed, but God rewards them for their defiance. Good job, midwives. Unluckily, Pharaoh decides that this time he's got a new rule, throw all the baby boys into the Nile River. At some point, a man went and married a woman and they had a son, which, as we know, is against the law for the Israelites in Egypt. But the boy's mother, Yocheved, voiced by Ophrahaza, took a creative reading of Pharaoh's law. She placed her son into the Nile, but in a safe basket. His sister, Miriam, who I'm told is good with water, followed the basket until Pharaoh's daughter found it when she went to bathe in the Nile. Miriam offers to get a Hebrew nurse, her mother, to help nurse the child, and bam, we have Moses, Miriam, and Yocheved, three Israelites with an entryway to the Pharaoh's palace. Then some time passes. Don't worry about it. Moses is all grown up now and sees an Egyptian beating an Israelite and, seeing nobody around, kills the Egyptian and hides the body in the sand, which is a pretty bad place to hide a body, what with all the wind. The next day, Moses tells off some Israelites for fighting, but they turn it around on Moses, calling out the hypocrisy of a murderer telling people not to fight. Scared of getting in trouble, he flees to Midian, meets his future wife Zipporah, voiced by Michelle Pfeiffer, at yet another meet-cute at a well, and then meets Reuel who might also be named Yitro, names are hard. This father-in-law gives Moses a job as a shepherd, and all of a sudden, boom, a burning bush that isn't actually burning. 
Moses thinks weird. God does God's thing and calls out Moses, Moses. Moses does his SpongeBob thing and says, Hineni, I'm ready. God says, remove your sandals from your feet, for you're standing on holy ground. Moses is afraid to hear any more and hides his face. God tells Moses God's name, Ehyeh, Asher, Ehyeh. This is the first time we've received an answer to that what's your name question in Torah. Nice going, Moses. God tells Moses to get all the Israelites together and get them to listen to him so that they'll know that they'll get out of Egypt soon. Moses says, seriously, what if they don't believe me? God replies with a few tricks and a, did I stutter? So Moses goes back to Egypt. God warns Moses that God's going to make it harder for Moses because he's going to stop Pharaoh from agreeing because that makes sense. Also, God has some anger issues in the middle of the night and tries to kill Moses, but no worries. Zipporah circumcises her son and guess what? Everything's okay. God assigns Aaron, Moses' older brother, to be Moses' hype man, and Moses shows the Israelites the trick that God performed, they believe him, and they're ready to take on the Pharaoh. Let my people go. And if you thought this would go down easy, you'd be, well, wrong. Pharaoh pushes back and punishes the people for even asking by forcing them to find their own straw, make their own bricks, and work without breaks, like Amazon. Moses questions God about what's going on, and God says, hey, settle down, I've got this. Pharaoh will kick you all out eventually because of me. And that's what you've got with Parashat Shemot. Not a bad beginning for a new book. Well done, Geb. I think if you took us through the wilderness, we wouldn't have spent 40 years, probably. <laughs> that was great. Thank you very much. That's high praise. Wow, Gabe, that was stellar. And by stellar, I mean, I love the movie stars who are voicing this dramatic tale, but I do want to know who is voicing Moses and God. Well, in the Prince of Egypt movie, which is the authoritative movie on all things the Prince of Egypt, Val Kilmer was the voice of both Moses and God. So Andrew and Shoshana, you have such incredible stories. They're so different. Some people say what's in a name, especially when it comes to dealing with Shemot. But in all reality, there are so many different stories just in this first Parsha of Exodus. It's incredible. And so I want to know more about the insights or the values or the beliefs that, that drive your passion and drive your work for the things that you do. What is it that gets you excited? What is it that gets you looking towards the future and, and hopeful about it? So first of all, I just want to say thank you again for having us, particularly in this tour portion, because I think that actually the spirit of this book is really the answer to your question for me. Like, I love that we're uh, essentially saying welcome to Passover in January. Uh, and thank goodness that this story is not relegated to springtime because it's really a story for all seasons. And of course, the exodus in Egypt is not something we only talk about in the Haggadah or during the Seder, but we have dozens of references to loving the stranger because we were strangers in the land of Egypt. Uh, and so to me, we should be talking about this story all the time. The exodus is not over till we are all free. Um, it's something that I learned as a young child and something that I carry with me uh, through every setting that I've ever been in. Uh, I find it very dear to how I think of how I want to be treated and how I hope to treat others. I I also think like this parasha is full of characters, of so many characters and, you know, wonderful examples of how we can live or how we can be helpful and wonderful of examples of different contributions of people from different backgrounds, actually, towards 
I, I think to us generally the whole parasha, like for example, we have lots of women in this parasha and we have people with privileges like, you know, Moshe comes from a, a place of privilege, although lands different, but we have like different contributions. And I think that in society, like once we acknowledge that everybody can contribute from wherever they, they are from or however they can towards like a common cause, we can always do something great together. Shoshana, I'm so glad you mentioned that because to me, this portion in particular is both a playbook for injustice and a playbook for resistance. And the characters that you mentioned feel like we have this kaleidoscope of people, as you mentioned, from all different walks of life who each do their little part in the portion. So whether it's Shifra and Pua, who uh, many have said committed the first act of civil disobedience in history, or at least in historical memory, by refusing to get rid of the firstborn, or Miriam and Yocheved, who insert themselves into the story very conveniently, or Pharaoh's daughter, who decides to defy her father very directly by bringing in a Hebrew into her home. Not to mention, of course, Moses and Aaron, but I think uh, it clearly takes a village to make a revolution happen. And this portion articulates that, outlines that, as well as provides the recipe for the opposite, which is the ways in which in a very short number of verses, we kind of get a chess playbook for how one might go about uh, performing oppression towards others. It's like verse eight, the new king didn't know Joseph. So it's like his history was erased. He's no longer seen as valuable. Now you're suddenly seen as a threat. Verse nine, there's a decision. There are too many of them. Now it's an us them. And then in verse 10, now we're using guile and deception. You know, they, they knew they were being sneaky, Pharaoh, by saying, let us deal shrewdly with them. There's this trumped up reason. Maybe they're going to be disloyal. There's no actual disloyalty. It's all just a rumor. And then verse 11, now let's oppress them. So we're seeing it's like boom, 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 how quickly those in power can turn the tables on the marginalized. And obviously, I don't even need to say how important it is for us to recognize these very steps in modern life. Yeah, it's that's that's very interesting that you, you say, you know, when about us and them, because, you know, we live mostly in the world right now where, you know, there's a lot of that kind of hatred between who us and them identifying ourselves based on who other people are and, you know, uh, thinking that whoever is a stranger or somebody who is not us is a danger to our existence or to our well-being. And I think that in this parasha, we also see that the Israelites embrace the idea of being a nation or a people based on what Pharaoh calls them. Pharaoh is the first person who calls the Israelites a people. Otherwise, they were one family that, you know, had the drama that we see from Genesis. And now, from from there onwards, they, they, they take on the idea of being a people and being solid and, 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 and like the idea that you will be strengthened by how other people see you or how other people categorize you is very interesting. Yeah, and it makes me wonder, it's, it's always been a question in my mind, and I think it's intentionally ambiguous, but clearly when Moses first sees the taskmaster whipping the slave, 
We don't know whether Moses himself knows that he is indeed a Hebrew. We might assume that he knows, um, and the text in the third person says that he looks upon his brothers, but it's not from his own mouth that that's the case. And so I'm wondering, you know, how you think about that. Do you think he knew? Do you think he didn't know? And does it matter? I'm not sure if he knew or he did not, but I think it doesn't matter uh, because we also see in this parasha other people who do the right thing, you know, not identifying with anything. But like we see the two midwives, uh, you know, who are said to be to fear God. And that's why because of the fear of God, that's why they do the right thing. And, you know, it, it leads you to, to to think of what drives us to do the right thing. Is it, you know, the fear of consequences or the fear of God or just a realization at one point that whatever has been going on is not right or we, we need to change. And, and, you know, thinking, just stopping and thinking about what we're doing um, at any moment and just changing, changing the course of whatever we've been doing. Well, and, you know, you mentioned the Hebrew midwives. That's another source of ambiguity, because depending on how you read the Hebrew, it could be that those midwives were Hebrew themselves, or they were the midwives of the Hebrew people, meaning they worked in that community, even though they were different. And I just think that both of these examples are very powerful when we think about things like allyship or solidarity. I agree with you that ultimately it doesn't matter. And Moses has certainly proven in this parsha that he intervenes all the time. He intervenes when it's a taskmaster and a Hebrew. He intervenes when it's two Hebrews. He intervenes when it's just the Midianites. He just intervenes. I think that's a defining characteristic of Moses and makes him particularly special ancestor of ours. But the fact that it's not clear that it was his business and the fact that it wasn't clear necessarily that the midwives were Hebrew or not says something to me about our responsibility as people in the world. You know, Dr. King said an injustice anywhere is an injustice everywhere. And yet we could read the Exodus story as one of something that happened to us. It was us against them, just like Pharaoh wanted it to be. But actually, maybe it's not that simple. Maybe people crossed lines. Maybe people didn't want it to be us versus them. Maybe people had more of a universalist outlook um, as much as the tribal lines were clearly drawn. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, you, you know, you mentioned something about Moses intervening, and we, we also see that his intervention when he sees an Egyptian master striking, I think, a, a Hebrew, he intervenes and things do not go well. And, you know, he causes more harm than good. He's forced to flee and, you know, like everybody, he doesn't change anything at that moment. And, you know, it just, I was thinking about that and thinking how we, how do we approach, like, you know, problems and how do we approach like you know like what's you know when a society something is going wrong and we can see it um how do we approach it like do we come in a position of knowing wh what to fix or how to fix it and and i i feel like you know like 
being here and studying and learning in America, they, I have so many ideas of, of how I want, when I go back home, like some things that I want to change and some things, you know. But I know that when I go back home, I, when I try to implement some of the things, I'll be met by resistance, you know. Who do I think I, I am? Like, because I went to America, I've been, in, I've been studying and to come and, and think that I can change things which have been done the same way for many, many years, even if it's such a great idea. So like, how do I go back and maybe sit down with people or like, what do I do so that it doesn't seem like I'm, you know, trying to be the one who is saving everybody? I'm so glad you mentioned that because it's uh, a huge question, both in the tour portion. I mean, this is the portion where they make this claim of, oh, we just we have this kind of festival we want to throw. I mean, they're not even necessarily totally forthcoming about the whole exodus. They're just asking for a little vacation for Pharaoh's servants. And ultimately, it backfires again. There's like double backfiring. And again, the ultimately, the taskmasters and the slaves blame Moses and Aaron. It's like when you try to make change, there can constantly be resistance. And so... I feel in my own work, the tension between the urgency that we feel to try to improve a situation for everyone, but also recognizing that you're not a leader if no one is following you. You know, Andrew, I so appreciate the need for community. I love that idea of a leader isn't a leader at all if there's nobody behind them. And I think that is really spoken to in this Torah portion. We've talked a few times now about uh, the episode with Moses striking down the taskmaster. And one of the things that really sticks out to me in that particular episode is that Moses, before killing the guy, looks around and doesn't see anybody there. And it's just him and the taskmaster and this Hebrew slave which is a ridiculous scene. There's no way there's just going to be these three guys in any one place, especially if you're building, if you're working. There's no way they're the only people there. So Moses is myopically focused on the situation at hand and has no idea of what's going on around him. He then buries the body, like literally hides the corpse, in sand, which, as I said, is a bad place to hide a body, and doesn't think through the consequences of his actions, doesn't think through how other people, even people with whom he should be allied, will react to that situation. So I'm I'm curious how you both read that episode particularly and read into or read out of Moses' lack of of vision when it comes to anybody else who could have intervened. I'll jump in and just say, I'm so glad you picked this verse. Uh, I think it's uh, chapter two, verse 12. Uh, it says, ko vecho. He looked this way and that way. And one way to read that verse is kind of like this cartoonish, ooh, I better make sure that no one's around before I do this morally questionable thing. And another way to look at it is that he saw an injustice and he looked to see if anyone was going to take responsibility for it. And he didn't see anyone. It kind of reminds me of the Perkei Avot uh, quote that says, 
in a place where there are no people. Uh, strive to be that person. Uh, and I think that's an incredibly powerful message that um, far few people are willing to take that responsibility. It's kind of the flip side of, of what you were saying in a way, because yes, we have to be so mindful as budding leaders or aspiring leaders not to take matters solely into our own hands because it's just impossible to accomplish anything as Moses has to learn later on when his father-in-law reminds him of that. But at the same time, the fact that he has this moral drive and initiative makes me fall in love with the guy. Yeah, I I think, Gabe, to go back to your concern about burying a corpse or a dead body in the sand, and also maybe thinking about looking um, here and there or like both sides it just it feels like like an image of somebody who is using resources that they have at that moment or like you know looking around to see if there's anything else that you know that they could grab or like a person who can help them or somebody who could stand up i can't remember where i read but i think i read a commentary that says the ish of looking around to see if there's a man or somebody was referring to a leader and uh, Moses saw that there was no leader, like there's nobody who would do it. So he went ahead and, do, and did it. So I can see how you can fall in love with this guy right now, Andrew. And we, we all love Moshe. Um, Lo kambe Israel ke Moshe od. The beauty of you know Jewish texts and Jewish learning is that uh, we do not have saints and we can always learn and, and, and grow, you know, learn from the mistakes and learn from, even if there were not mistakes and there were things that they did in that moment, we can always learn from how we can do it different. I think that my, my lesson, the, the lesson that I take from, 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 from this, uh, this part of the, the portion is studying the situation and, and, and knowing why there was no leader at that moment. And we, I think we just really need to understand like, you know, the, there are definitely lots of reasons under, underlying and there are so many things why nobody came up because they were, they were in fear. Everybody was in fear and there would be no leader, you know. They've been oppressed for many, many years and, and there was really nothing that they, they could do at that point. And I think I, I buy your idea that at that point it was, you know, he had to do something. And that's a beautiful thing that he wanted to do something and he did something and he did whatever he could with the resources that he had around him. So I think that you just named something really beautiful. And, and Andrew, I want to also draw back on something that you said before, this idea that a lot of the time there are these division lines drawn between us and them, and those constantly change in this portion. It is Moses is a Hebrew, then he's an Israelite, then he's an Egyptian, then he's a Midianite, then he's back to the Israelites. And it's a really interesting thing because he says very poignantly when he names his son, you know, he says out loud, I have been a stranger in a, in a strange land. And I think when you lead as an outsider, first off, I think every leader to an extent is an outsider, right? I think there is something that truly it sets them apart. It is a difficult, lonely place sometimes. You are leading from the outside and everybody leads in a different way. You can lead top down, you can lead bottom up, you can service lead. I'm curious for both of you in your own leadership what it means sometimes to be a stranger in a strange land, to come into a community, to represent that community. Maybe if you're new to that community, either 
Andrew, I know that you're doing some of this work with the Orangetown Jewish Center. And Shoshana, I know that you're doing work with the North Fork Reform Synagogue. But what does that mean to you to be a leader and at the same time to be a stranger in a strange land? I think as, as somebody who, you know, is from Uganda with um, totally a different culture and, you know, different ways of how we understand things and different ways of how we relate to people. And, you know, I've lived in Israel for two years and I'm now in America. And there are so many times where I question, you know, my existence and my leadership in a place where, you know, Everybody else is different and I, I'm different and what I bring in and how, how much we share in common. Um, and if it comes to like, you know, celebrating American holidays or things like that and how, you know, I have to study and learn about all these things, which is really wonderful and beautiful in itself. Amanda, we got together to the I Center. I was reading through the Aleph Bet of Israel Education and something about identities. And it, it had, you know, instead of saying my identity, identity we have like so many different identities or things identifiers and I, I was answering the questions you know they there was an exercise of answering questions of who you are I am a Ugandan Jew and I am this and this and I know that the tradition that I have right now like the community the community that I am serving that I'm a leader of is an Ashkenazi community and how how am I going to be like how what do I bring to this community I mean I can bring myself and my Ugandan tradition but also this is a community that also is established on Ashkenazi traditions that I do not share so much I don't share the food and I don't share so many things but as a leader I think I think that that is also a beauty in its own self because then I get to, you know, bring my own style of leadership. I think for me, um, I've had a few experiences over the past number of years where I found myself in the middle. Uh, so, for example, Amanda and I, we both uh, come from Rockland County, uh, right outside of New York City. And uh, I was very involved in advocacy for the school district where I was a student. Uh, that school district is very unusual demographically because the majority of voters at this point basically are private school parents sending their kids to private religious school, to yeshiva. Um, and the school board makeup reflects that demographic, meaning that those who are making decisions for the public school system don't send their kids to public school and have instead slashed full-day kindergarten, arts, music, advanced classes, social workers, etc. And children of color who mostly receive free and reduced lunch are the ones who have to pay the consequence for those decisions. And so me, not even living in Rockland anymore, my parents lived there at the time, so I felt justified being uh, at school board meetings and organizing people because I was an alum of the school district, because I felt a sense of obligation to my own hometown community. But I also was, I was an outsider insider. I, I, I didn't send children to school. I don't have any children. Uh, and I received criticism from the school board community for butting my nose where it didn't belong. And I also found myself uh, confronting 
borderline anti-Semitic comments from some members of the public school community um, who were very understandably upset about the situation, but then were attributing some of the actions to the school board of the school board to their Jewish identity. And so in some ways it was like, I couldn't win for losing. And on the other hand, I was able to see multiple sides in a way that those who were in it completely uh, struggled sometimes to see. And so I tried to leverage the goodwill on both sides uh, in order to uh, listen, in order to be heard, but it puts you in a very uncomfortable situation because you're never fully embraced by any one group because uh, you aren't fully of that group. There's there's a couple of things I want to say here. Um, I so appreciate both of your stories and the ways in which you differently from each other, but the ways in which you feel set apart. Um, and I really appreciate that Amanda brought up this language of being set apart. Um, coming from a theology and religious studies background, when I hear set apart, I think sacred. Um, because the sacred is that which is set apart from the mundane. And so I, what I want to suggest is those very things that set us apart are also the things which make us holy, or can be the things which give us the ability to make sacred choices. So that's the first thing I want to say. The second thing I want to say is that I think it's interesting that in this whole conversation, we haven't yet touched on what I think might be the most famous or most widely recognizable part of Torah, which is the burning bush image, where we see sacred space called out so explicitly. God says, remove the, remove the sandals from your feet for the place on which you stand is holy ground. And that is so incredible because we're talking about these sacred people who are set apart and who have confusing identities. And we're talking about... Um, and we're talking about it all in the context of the Israelites doing this mundane work, doing this backbreaking labor, but mundane, not explicitly not sacred work. And then we're talking about it all outside of God. God's not in the story yet. And then suddenly we're in we are in a place that is entirely set apart. We are now in sacred space, and that's when God enters the story. So I want to continue this train of thought of what sets you apart to how do you create that sacred space? How do you create that ability to lift people out of the mundane into the sacred? I'll start just by saying that it does not appear an accident that this episode happens in the wilderness. And it's kind of a third place a place where no one really can claim ownership. There's a kind of neutrality, a kind of mystery, a kind of ambiguity of ownership, where I think some magical and holy things can happen. And I just find that to be true in my own work. 
that when I'm trying to bridge gaps, when I'm trying to find common ground, it's often in a place that is not owned by a single group. It's where neither group is necessarily fully satisfied, uh, but there's a solace in knowing that the other side isn't fully satisfied also. And that's instructive to me, that part of what it means to, to bring people together means to find a separate space. Geb, two questions that right now are the most asked questions of me uh, going into rabbinic school. The first one was, why did you choose to go to rabbinic school? And I always had, had an answer, but you know, it's never constant. But one of my favorite was saying, I saw a burning bush. Um, so I would say that to everybody before I started explaining uh, as a joke, but really, I like the idea of being with people. Like that's my thing. And uh, being with people through their life changes and being with people in a community. And whenever I speak about it, like I, I feel like tears might come. Like one of my favorite things this year has been uh, leading services and being with this community that I'm with for, 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 for whatever time that I've been. And I, I, I go to school and everything, but this is the highlight of my, of my life. And I have also worked in other fields where I was with people, my work with HIV education. I mentioned that I, I'm really very passionate about education and about information, and that includes Torah uh, study and everything else. And during my, my work of HIV education, I used to just sit with people and prepare them to, to go get tested and also sit with them and prepare them to receive results as uh, after they were tested. And some of them were always good and some of them were not good, as we know um, result, how results come out. And I always saw, you know, burning bushes like things that were you know burning and sometimes you know i always there were there were those moments where i felt i feel like i did not say hineni i did not respond and i did not stop and turn around to do something or to respond um and maybe i should have and there were things that i saw that i thought maybe we would we should change but you know maybe i did not but I think one of the things that I can contribute as a leader is that the love for being with community and being in a community and growing together. And that's why I think that that's my passion for wanting to be a congregational rabbi. I do believe in people uh, doing whatever they can in their jobs or in their fields, even, even though they are small. And I think this takes me back to the whole parasha of, you know, like different people in the parasha doing um, whatever they can do in their own fields to contribute to the larger uh, goal of, you know, justice and everything. We have the midwives, we have the daughter we have of Pharaoh, we have the sister watching. And I feel like everybody in their own uh, position can do something. We can change, we can sit with people, we can talk to people and, 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 and grow in that way. And I think that for me, the idea of the burning bush is mostly to be present and just be there with people and be with kids and, and adults and just be a mentor or be a teacher or be whatever you can be, but just be with people. And my ideal life, like my ideal idea of, of living is to be on a kibbutz and be in an open community where I can, you know, have a whole community of people and be with people and live socially and grow. Well, and I think that the, the portion that you're mentioning also raises such a controversial question, uh, which is God says at the burning bush that he heard 
the Israelite cry and God decided to intervene. And to me, the big question then is, why did it require the Israelites to cry out for God to intervene? Did God not know that the people were afflicted, that the people were oppressed? And, you know, I think the answer in some ways is exactly what you said, Shoshana, which is that everyone plays a role, actually, that maybe part of the role is the crying out. Like, we need people to cry out and to ask for help. Like, that could be the role that you play. I find a lot of the congregants I work with and other folks who want to be advocates really don't know how they can contribute. And part of it is just, like, lament is great. Being able to be upset in a public way and to fetch about it and to get other people involved by raising alarm bells, that's a, a way that we can contribute to. So I find it kind of interesting and uh, not fun is the wrong word when the Israelites are crying, but I find it uh, a special twist uh, to see that the even the Israelites who are complaining actually are doing a really important job in alerting the authorities to a problem. So I think also in that same moment, Andrew, and I think that you name it really beautifully, we get God's name for the first time. A big deal in both the book and Parsha Shemot, right? This Parsha of names. We finally get one, you know, and and God says, Ehyeh asher ehyeh, which is I am what I am, or I will be what I will be, or whatever it is that you want, Kesarasara. Here's the issue. Ehyeh asher ehyeh might sound to a lot of people like it is what it is. And I'm not sure that that's a statement that people are so comfortable with right now. And so my question to you is, how do you take something like it is what it is and and bring people to action against that or bring people up against that, either with the Sedek Box app, Andrew, that I know that you've been working so diligently on for truly since Gabe and I have known you, um, or Shoshana in the Ugandan community where you're you're literally making history as as we sit here with you yeah so before he actually names himself he does say i'm looking at uh chapter 3 verse 12 vayomer ki imach he says i'll be with you he uses the same word and then later on moses says well when they ask what your name is, what should I say? And he says it again. He says, eh, yeah, you know, he's, he uses it again as if this idea of I will be with you is the point. And oftentimes, you know, when I do pastoral work with folks these days and trying to help people understand, particularly in an era of COVID, what has God's role been? How can we conceive of God when we're trying to address injustice and we're just overwhelmed by it? Why is God not wham, bam, zam intervening? We can instead use this phrase, I think, as a source of comfort, that God will be with us in every moment. It's more of a God of accompaniment than a God of lightning striking and smiting, etc. cetera. Uh, it's more of the idea that at any given moment, 
the one thing that we count on is that we are not alone. And I find that to be an incredibly helpful idea. You mentioned the tzedek box, you know, this ritual that's essentially a Jewish justice journaling ritual where you write a slip of paper down uh, and indicate the act of justice that you've pursued or a reflection on it. Or if you've downloaded our app, you can write a, a note uh, on your app and put it in your box. But part of that process involves a prayer. And I don't think that that's perfunctory. I think that's actually very essential to the process because you're essentially saying, I can't do this alone. I'm not doing this alone. In fact, if ever I convinced myself as a social justice advocate that I made something happen, well, shame on me because that cannot be true. It, at the very least, requires more than one person to make a systemic change. One single person never, ever does. But even when you feel like you're alone, there's something beyond you that you can rest upon and recognize that your efforts are important, but insufficient. And that's actually, I think, very relieving that it's, it can't be and it isn't all on you. And that's how I think about Ahia. Yeah, and I think that also God, after the burning bush and speaking to Moshe, God, as we might perceive or know that God might have had the power of healing Moshe's speech and so that he is able to go forward and speak clearly, but he does not and encourages Moshe to really just go and do as much as he could. And also God points out to Moshe that there's also Aaron who could help him accomplish whatever he, was, he wanted to accomplish. And I think this, for me, it goes back to encouraging people to stand up for themselves and do things for themselves rather than doing things for them. And I think as, as leaders, something that we need to think about is being that kind of person behind, behind people so that the change or whatever is coming is initiated and, uh, you know, people take responsibility and feel part of the change more than, you know, doing things for them or being at the forefront. And I think, Amanda, going back to it is what it is. I think there's also some beauty of recognizing the situation that is at, at hand, that things are the way they are for now and things maybe probably need to be changed, but this is what we know about what the situation is right now. And where do we go from here, from things being what they are, because we want things to be different and things to be the way they are supposed to be or they should be. And I think that as a leader, I'll reveal my other question that people ask me the most is where do I want to be a leader after five, my five years at HUC? And I don't have a clear answer, but I definitely want to go back to, to my community at some point and, and, and be a leader in my community. And I know that, we know, we, we talked about, you know, being strangers in both places. I know that when I go back, I'll still be, even, even though I'm from this community, I'll, still, I'll, I'll also have some strangeness on me coming from, you know, being away for five years and having a, being in school somewhere else. I would, you know, there will be people who... Uh, you know, look at me as a stranger also when I go back. But I think working with people 
and behind them or understanding where their what their initiatives are or where what their efforts are and what they want to do to change and supporting them or being behind them uh to to improve their lives for education and and, and for so many things i think it's like a goal that i have instead of you know changing things for them um you know it strikes me that our first episode was parashat lechlecha and now here at our 10th episode with Parashat Shemot, we've arrived at what is probably the greatest call to action since Lech Lecha. Lech Lecha was go forth from your father's land, and Shemot is go back, go back to Egypt and do all of these things. Go be a leader. So I'm, I'm wondering, to wrap up this section of our conversation, for the two of you, Andrew and Shoshana, what are your calls to action? What do you hope the listeners of this episode will come away from and maybe do once they're done listening? Well, I'll start and say one of the reasons why I was so excited to be here is to let people know about the Tzedek Box, uh, because particularly now, as we enter into a new administration in the White House, I think it is quite easy for people to take their foot off the gas and feel like a lot of the challenges that we have faced as a country for the past four years will no longer be an issue. And, you know, inequity and injustice did not begin in 2016. And if you are looking for ways to remain accountable and to have a regular method for accessing and reflecting on the actions that you want to take to make our world reflect these values of the exodus is not over until we are all free, then I invite you to go to tzedekbox.org. Uh, where you can learn about both physical boxes that you can make, or if you are digitally inclined, you can download the Tzedek Box app from the App Store, thanks to the brilliant work of this podcast's producer, Idan Waldman. So that's my call to action is hold yourself accountable and you can you you may or may not be Shomer Shabbos, but you can be Shomer Tzedek by having a regular ritual that ensures that you're living up to the values that we put on the bumper sticker, but we don't always do every single day or week or month. Shomer Tzedek is now my my favorite phrase, <laughs> and I, I I I read it and I I loved it. I. I think for me, the call that I want to put out there is that as leaders, we sometimes all have the right intentions to do the right thing and we can contribute to whatever whatever the cause is as little as we can or as big as we can and i think that what we need to open up our minds and our hearts to is welcoming all the contributions that we can get and welcoming all the allyships and seeing people in our societies as equal contributors no matter what background or where they are coming from as equal contributors <laughs> 
The Tzedek box is a new initiative that's like a tzedakah box, but instead of coins, you put a slip of paper inside every time you confront an injustice. If you speak out against sexism in your workplace, if you call your senator's office about criminal justice reform, if you donate to register disenfranchised voters, write it down. Not for self-congratulation, but for a chance to pause, to reflect, perhaps to seek divine partnership in the daunting work you are tackling. In this mini diary entry, you might share how you're feeling, what you're realizing, or what you want to do next as a result. And then, once a year, you'll open your box as a form of sacred accountability and as a chance to take stock of what you did and where you may want to redouble your efforts in the future. You can make your own physical box or you can try our new free iPhone app that aggregates calls to action from members of the Jewish Social Justice Roundtable so you can easily find them and participate. Search for Tzedek Box on the App Store in your iPhone or tzedekbox.org for more information. It is my privilege to introduce a third Rockland County native onto this podcast today. Rachel Hirschman is a full-time educator passionate about re-envisioning Jewish education for the 21st century. She's finishing a double master's in Jewish education nonprofit management at Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion. Rachel has worked in a supplemental religious school setting since becoming a madricha, which is a classroom aide, in 2004. That is 16 years of being immersed in a religious school classroom, an experiential classroom. Man incredible, Rachel. She is also an alum of the URJ Eisner camp, as are Gabe and I, and loves creating experiential education experiences at Westchester Reform Temple. Rachel, we're so excited that you're on the show, and we are even more thrilled to pass you the mic for the Q&A section with Andrew and Shoshana. Thanks, Amanda. It's so exciting to be here after listening to this podcast for the last couple of weeks. Um, it's great to be with you all. So I want to start off by asking Shoshana a question. Shoshana, you talked about how you're going to go back to your community in Uganda and not just be somebody who's seen as trying to solve a problem that's happening over there, but actually coming in and helping. And I think that you have some insight that the rest of us don't have and that you grew up in this culture. And I was wondering if you could share with us some of that experience. Thank you, Rachel. Um, yes, so I grew up um, in Uganda, and uh, I think part of the reasons why I love being in the Jewish communities and, and congregations and, and I love Jews is that I grew up around the Jewish community, and I spent most of my time uh, between my home and the synagogue because I, I always went for, you know, activities and plays and, you know, like so many things and singing in the choir, and I went to the Jewish high school uh, in Uganda, I didn't have the opportunity to go to the primary school, but because it was not there yet. And so I grew up with my grandparents and I grew up on a farm growing coffee and beans and chickens and goats and so many things. And I loved Shabbat. Shabbat was like my favorite thing ever uh, because I had like, you know, the best 
cutest clothes to wear on Shabbat and shoes and everything because my grandparents made sure that I, 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 I enjoyed going for services because, you know, I, I, I walked to school and I had no shoes and everything. So they made sure that they have special things for Shabbat so that I could enjoy going uh, for Shabbat. And all my best friends right now in the world, friends that I grew up going and doing the same activities. So I know, yes, I, I do know the community really, really well. And I've worked in the community. I've been like a youth leader. And when I was in university, my friends and I found like the a hilarious version of Uganda, I would say. It's like a university-based, but it was not part of the university. We met outside, but we had like services and activities for like a, a couple of us who were far away from the community and wouldn't go back home for Shabbat and, and celebrating holidays. Excellent. I know Gabe already talked about discomfort last week about putting one arm over the other and feeling a little bit awkward. So we're not going to go there this week. But I think Shoshana, you talked about your work accompanying these HIV patients. And Andrew, I know that you have also been in accompanied individuals in your justice work. And so I was hoping you could share a little bit about that. Sure, I'd be happy to. So one organization I'm involved in is the New Sanctuary Coalition. Uh, which supports asylum seekers in applying for uh, protected status here in the United States. And I've done that on two levels. One is actually going with people to court and not being a lawyer, actually not saying anything, but just being present and bearing witness to the proceedings and being a source of presence for the friend the person who's seeking asylum. And that has probably been one of the most powerful experiences I've had in a long time, both because it's hard for me to truly imagine what it must be like to be totally alone in a foreign country. And, you know, if I can be, if my body can serve as a form of connection, a form that the person is not alone, well, that's a very easy thing to give. And sadly, but also remarkably, judges comment on the fact that we're present. Oh, I see the new Sanctuary Coalition folks are here. And so it's disturbing that my presence would change how a judge might operate and feel maybe more accountable than if the friend were by him or herself, where the judge might be able to more quickly or less thoroughly judge the situation. Uh, but but that's, that, that's what we're dealing with. So that's one example. And then a second example is, in addition to going into court, I also have worked with several people on their actual applications. So what that means is, of course, filling out a form but also completing an affidavit in which someone has to share their entire story of pain, hurt, I mean, sexual abuse, robbery, extreme loss, you know, the most unimaginable and horrific things that these beautiful human beings have been through. And it's my job to basically ask them about their story and get specific such that 
that story may be persuasive to a judge. And it feels, at one time, it feels invasive. And we have to take it very slowly. And I have to try to be as sensitive as possible to where the person is emotionally, because I may be the first person they've ever told their story to, because it's embarrassing, because it's traumatic, etc. And also, I think it can be a source of healing to have someone to share your story with and to have someone take all of that content into a form that can be digested by the system. That can be useful because any of our stories can overwhelm us and having some separate person there to hear it and in a loving way, edit it or distill it and then share it back and play it back and see if it lands. That's, um, that's a form of accompaniment that I didn't, um, I don't think I fully appreciate would be a value. And frankly, I think it's something that I seek in my own relationship with family, friends, and God, you know, to be able to, you know, if I do heat bodhidut and I speak to God and the feeling that I can express myself fully and know that whatever I say, I will be there another day to express another feeling and another to live another day. Um, that's, um, it's such a gift. So it's something that I just, I think about both on the, on the giving side and on the receiving side. I think what I heard in both of your stories is just being this presence and Amanda put in the chat, uh, or I will be with you. And I think that that's a theme that we've heard in this portion. I think that, you know, a lot of the times when we think about leadership, we think about the person who stands up and takes a like very direct stand. And it sounds like some of the leadership work that you guys have been doing is just being present, just being that quiet presence and being there. And so I guess I am wondering how much of your work is about listening, is about just being a presence I'm so glad you asked that question because, you know, on the Tzedek Box app, that's a shameless product placement message. On the Tzedek Box app, we categorize the various opportunities and actions that people can take. And there are a variety. It's not just protesting or it's not just sticking it to the man or it's not just, you know, whatever those categories are that may feel more traditional to uh, what you think of when you think of justice work. There's also listening. There's also learning. Learning can be such a deep form of justice. I mean, we're in the congregation I'm interning at right now. We're preparing our work for February and a focus on Black History Month and racial justice work and our ability to learn the history of Hartford and to learn how white flight happened and to learn what that meant for who got resources and who didn't get resources. To just being willing to hear that story and to be changed by that story and hopefully, yes, to pass along that story, that is a transformative act because many people just don't want to hear it. They just want to reject it. 
And when you reject it, then you don't allow it to change you and then things don't change. So I actually think that um, either being a presence, yes, for others can be a very powerful experience. And I've seen that in pastoral work as well, to just listen and be there and not try to fix. That's a big part of rabbinic training, but also learning and being willing to be changed, I think is a hugely important part of justice work. I agree with you, Andrew. And I think that one of the greatest gifts that you can give to human being is valuing them, valuing people in terms of, you know, listening to them and listening to their stories and um, listening to where they're coming from. And, and, and Andrew, like you, you talk about, you know, hearing all the stories, somebody trusting that they would tell this story to you that they've never told anybody else. And, and I think that that is very powerful and it, it's, it's powerful for people. It's also powerful for us uh, as leaders. We grow and learn from that. And, and I think that definitely we should take actions. We should do things. We should actively go out there and do things. And I'm, I'm not saying that we should just, you know, sit down and listen and take note. We should also do things. But I think it starts with listening and getting to the core of, pro, of, of a problem before we start to try and solve it and, and knowing how, how we got in where we are in the first place. And I think that's, that's like a gift that we can give to the people that we work with. And I think like being a, a rabbi or an educator or whatever positions we have, you seem like you're somebody who is up there on the front, on, you know, on the bima or in the classroom, who is speaking up there. But I think we also have so much of where we are behind closed doors, what to use behind closed doors, where we have to encourage people to be up there, to encourage people who have other professions and to talk to them and to listen to them and be the, that force that a he uh, whatever I will be behind you to do your work or to be so that I can listen to you so you can go forth, blossom or do what you need to do. And I think that's such a, a beautiful thing. I wonder if you have one piece of wisdom uh, that you have learned this year that you could share with us in five words or less. I think I'll go first. Mine would be, it would be Shomeret Sedek. Observer of justice. Observer of justice, yes. <laughs> Andrew. Well, maybe I'll choose this way and that way. Uh, the idea of looking around and seeing if anyone else is activated by what is in front of us and regardless of that, stepping forward. If it weren't enough to make HUC NY proud that they have three rabbinical students, a cantorial student, and an educational nonprofit student on one episode, Gabe had to take it even further to bring in this new year with a delicious concoction for Midrashic Mixology, and I can't wait for you to share it with everybody here. Thank you, Amanda. In honor of the confusion and also deception surrounding the birth and nursing of baby Moses, we've created a very much not infant-friendly drink, not your mother's milk. This boozy milkshake will soften even the hardest Pharaoh's heart. 
Start with six scoops of vanilla ice cream, much like the Forefathers Float, use the good stuff, in a blender with three ounces of vodka, three ounces of Kahlua, and two ounces of milk. Blend that until it looks something like a milkshake, use your judgment, and pour into two vessels of your choosing. Top with whipped cream and shaved chocolate. Share it with your brother, your sister, your mother, your adopted mother, your wife, your father-in-law, that guy you killed, or anyone else. It is what it is. For an alcohol-free version, this is literally a milkshake, or if you're in my neck of the woods, a frap. Switch out the liquor for a shot of espresso or some coffee syrup. Happy New Year, L'chaim. Hey Gabe, for all those Jews around us that are lactose intolerant, do you have a dairy-free version? Yeah. You can use dairy-free ice cream and also a nut milk of your choosing and also... Lactaid is my best friend. They don't sponsor us, but that's just a fact. I recommend coconut milk ice cream by So Delicious. Not an advertisement. Cool, 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 cool. I'm wondering if we can receive an Uber Eats version of this drink as a reward <laughs> for appearing on this episode. <laughs> I'm with Andrew on this. <laughs> I'll make you a deal. Once uh, this pandemic is over, we can all get together and we'll have milkshakes. Delish. We've hit that time of, you know, thank yous and closing cues. And so I want to say that all of us were in the year in Israel together. And Zelda wrote a really incredible poem called L'chol Ish Yeshem, To Every Person There's a Name. And I think that there's a really beautiful list of parents give names, of our stature, of coming from nature, coming from neighbors, coming from enemies, coming from issues. And with that, Shoshana, Andrew, Rachel, Idan, and Gabe, which name do you feel the greatest connection to? Andrew, let's start with you. I appreciate the question. I don't usually go by my Hebrew name, which is Avraham, but I'm connected to it in part because it was my great-grandfather's name and I love New York so, so much. And he was the original New Yorker of our family. So, so much magic is imbued in his life story and therefore in mine. Uh, but also from the biblical Avraham, you know, we talked a little bit about Lech Lecha earlier. And I think we all have our Lech Lecha moments. And I certainly am no exception. Who knew that at the age of 40, I would decide to take a big right turn and or left turn and go to rabbinical school. But my name always reminds me that you've got to be paying attention to what the call is. Shoshana. So I have three names. My mom named me Susan, Susan. And my grandmother named me Nambi. Nambi is from my grandmother and that's my favorite name because I loved her. She was so kind. She just fed everybody. And I, I don't think I'm near her perfectness or whatever, but I would love to live life like her. And I, I would also like to, to keep Susan because, you know, I don't know why my mom gave me that name, but she's not alive anymore. And I, I think that's something that I want to keep from her. But I chose the name Shoshana for myself to repress Susan, because I think Shoshana is such a pretty name and it's a Hebrew name. So I like Shoshana. And like wherever I go, people call me by different names. Like 
like in, in, in Uganda, people call me mostly by Nambi because, you know, that's like your clan name that's more powerful. And like in my Jewish world, I'm called Shoshana. And some people that I went to school with call me Susan. Tell us how you really feel about the name Susan. Just kidding. I didn't know. I don't like it. I did not like it for a really long time. That was very clear. Moving on to Rachel. So I have a fun story. Last December, I was sitting in a movie theater when going to movie theaters was a thing, watching The Rise of Skywalker, where Ray chooses the last name Skywalker. Um, and that movie for me was incredibly powerful and led me on a name change journey of my own to change my last name to Rachel Hirschman, which is actually my grandparents' name. So I also, like Shoshana, have a strong connection with my grandparents who helped to raise me, and I miss them very much. They were instrumental in my upbringing, and yeah, I mean, part of the joy of being a Hirschman is my grandmother was a language major, but she became a teacher for 30 years in Spanish and French. She was a student at NYU in the 1940s, and so I kind of feel like living on the Hirschman name a little bit by following through on being a teacher. Idan? Well, without going into too much detail about all my names, specifically, I think what's most interesting here is for me, now in this time of my life and in this really weird timeline that we're all living in, I'm really most proud of right now of the name that I'm making for myself. That isn't necessarily a name, but the reputation, I guess, more so. You know, between this podcast at Sadek Box with Andrew and working with different synagogues uh, f- to make music happen in a virtual space during the pandemic, I, if you had said to me, really, I would say, you know, five, ten years ago, but really at any point in my life, that not only would there be a pandemic, but I'd be doing video editing and producing a podcast and developing phone apps and working this significantly into the Jewish world, which I didn't really expect myself to be doing professionally. I, I would have really thought you were crazy. And uh, so I really think that I'm most proud of right now the the work I'm doing now and I suppose the reputation I'm starting to get. And yeah, I'm really proud of everything going on right now. Gabriel David Snyder. I think, um, you know, as... I could talk about my names, Gabriel, David Snyder. They all have interesting things, I guess. But similar to Idan, I think that the name I am making for myself is really important to me. And one thing that I've been struggling with for the last couple of years now in the cantorial program at HUC is the title of Cantor and what that means. Taking on the mantle of clergyhood is really daunting. I, under less than great circumstances, had the opportunity to see a lot of my biggest canter role models all in the same Zoom call uh, in the last couple of weeks. And to be following in their footsteps and to receive a name that truly I see as theirs is is such a great honor. So that that's definitely, I haven't gotten there yet, but that will be the name of which I am most proud. I love it. For many people, they know that my name to be simple is Amanda. 
And generally, if anyone talks to anyone in my family, it is Amanda Catherine always, every day in the normal. Um, but the name I probably most connect to is my brother's nickname for me, which is AK. Um, and the name that most of my students called me if they wanted to get my immediate attention when I went to Oregon, because I was very confused about how my family in New York had suddenly made it to Oregon. And it was always a conversation starter because my name has a lot of history behind it, uh, some of which Andrew actually knows because I shared it in a class once. But speaking of conversations, Andrew Shoshana, if people want to continue the conversation, how do they best find or follow you? Well, for me, I invite you to go to tzedekbox.org or you can follow tzedekbox on Instagram. Those are two different ways you can stay in touch with the work we're doing. And my Facebook account is Shoshana Nambi. And for now, I am with the new Folk Reform Synagogue, and you can learn about what we do there. Beautiful. And for our guests, any last words, thoughts, concerns, or jokes? This was great. Thank you so much for bringing in this book with us. I, as I said at the beginning, I love the fact that we're celebrating Passover in January. May we celebrate it every single month. I love it. Thank you so much, Shoshana, to Andrew, to Rachel. And as always, to the most incredible, wonderful producer of all time, Edan. So I think that Shoshana and Andrew named some really important things. The idea of being present, the idea of, you know, things happening so quickly in our lives, of tables turning. But really what's sticking with me right now is Shoshana's question from earlier in the episode of, what drives us to do the right thing? And with this new year, with 2021 as a fresh start of, of trying to enter into a new mindset, it makes me think, what are some of the right things that we might be looking to do? I totally agree with you. You know, for a Torah portion that's so full of destruction, you know, from the very beginning, we have the murder of Jewish children, we have the murder of an Egyptian taskmaster, and then we have the scene in the wilderness with Moses in the burning bush that is said to take place at Mount Horeb, which is literally the mountain of destruction. So it would seem that from all of this destruction actually comes something constructive, where we're starting a new year, and it seems to me that in this new book of Torah, we're starting a new story. I think that's real. This idea of, I saw a burning bush, the lights that are driving us forward, the things that are really galvanizing us to get up and go, not just let my people go, but hey, let's go ourselves to make this new journey happen. I'm curious, Gabe, what it is to be called a people for the first time by somebody on the outside. We spoke a little bit about leading from the outside, but what is it to be identified as something from another person's point of view? You know, I think that that's actually, unfortunately, a really common reality that often when we take on an identity, it's often being projected onto us because people need to see us as other in some way and they need to name that. That's how a lot of names of identities take root. That said, as we said earlier, that otherness, that set-apartness is also what makes things sacred. So as much as it is problematic, as much as it is even offensive, it also presents an opportunity to turn things around and see ourselves as greater. I think that's a really great insight. And, you know, look, it, it seems that 
God's saying everything's going to be okay. I mean, it's not like we could expect anything to create a storm next week, could we? Well, as we know, over the next two weeks, we're going to read about a lot of plagues, and the trouble doesn't end there. The whole arc of Jewish history is full of a lot of bad stuff. But I think what we have been doing and what we will continue to do is to take that adversity and to take those uncomfortable moments and make meaning out of them. So I'm really excited to do that today and to get to do that with you guys in the future. And so for this New Year's episode and this new book of the Torah, I think we've got one thing left to say. L'chaim, everybody. L'chaim. My name is Shoshana Lambi and not Susan. And you're listening to Drinking and Drushing Torah with a Twist.